the text that we began to look at last week, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is rightly understood by Christian theologians and scholars through the centuries as one of the most important and theologically rich texts in all of the New Testament, in terms especially of describing the person and work of the incarnate Christ and our salvation, as well as the eternal loving relationship between the Father and the Son. Last week, we focused our attention on verses 5 to 8, looking carefully at how the Son has revealed to us the true nature of God's character by pouring himself out, by uniting himself to human flesh, by humbling himself and embracing death, even, as Paul says, death on a cross. When we cast our eyes on the crucified Christ, when we read about his death in the Gospels, we see God's nature most clearly, for Jesus is the one who has come to make the Father known, and he makes the Father known most particularly in his death. But there is much more going on here in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And so I wanted to take another run at this text this morning, focusing our attention today on how we are actually caught up into the story that Paul tells here. We are actually called to imitate the Son in his humility, his pouring out of himself, but also looking carefully at verses 9 to 11, where we read of the Father's faithfulness to the Son, how the Father actually glorifies himself, most especially in this, that he exalts the Son after his death. He raises him from the dead. He gives him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and confess that he is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Listen now as we read again God's holy and inerrant word from Philippians 2. This passage is printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to read along there. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold. It's the most precious thing in your life. It is sweeter than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. What a gift it is. Listen to it now. The apostle writes and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name 
that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of my favorite of the historic prayers of the church um, might be familiar to you. We use it often in worship. Um, You've heard it before. It goes like this. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That is a prayer that you can pray every day of your life as you walk in the way of our Lord. I love that prayer because it describes so succinctly for us the way of Jesus, the way of discipleship. Jesus himself suffered and died before his glory and exaltation. And it brings us, therefore, this prayer does, into the story of Jesus, promising that we too will walk in the way of the cross, which is the way of Jesus, and asking for the Lord's grace in that place, that God will mercifully be with us in our self-denial, in our obedience, in our suffering, so that as we walk in the way of the cross, we will find it, paradoxically, paradoxically, to be none other than the way of life and peace. This prayer was written by an American pastor in the late 19th century, though its roots go back at least 200 years earlier. I don't know for certain, but I suspect that when the words of this prayer were written, they came out of a meditation on our passage this morning in Philippians 2. Because this passage, which speaks of the suffering, the humility, and death of Jesus, is not only about Jesus, it's also about us who follow in his way. Remember the context of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Sometimes this passage is so well known and famous that it's taken out of its context, but the context is important. Right before Paul goes into this glorious theological exposition 
and verses 5 to 11, and verses 1 to 4, he is talking to his readers about the unity of the church, what it means to live together in grace and love. And Paul specifically in verses 3 and 4 has urged his readers to do nothing, nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility to count others as more significant than themselves. That, beloved, is the way of the cross. To, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Paul is arguing that this kind of humble attitude is fundamentally significant for the unity and flourishing of the church as the living body of Christ, living with humility, living Other directed lives, as Paul describes it, is fundamental to the Christian life. And then in verse 5, he connects all of that exhortation to the life of Jesus. He says, do what Jesus did, is what I'm trying to say to you. Have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? In your union with Christ, this mind, this way of life, this approach to loving and loving others and living among others is available for you. You're called into it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and so on. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's linking our lives to the pattern and example of Jesus. He's saying what you are really called to is not just humility in the abstract, but humility after the example and pattern of our Lord, who emptied himself, who humbled himself, who took the form of a servant, who became obedient to death, even death on the cross. As we embrace humility, as we consider others more important than ourselves, Paul is telling us you are walking in the way of Jesus. You are walking in union with the one who goes before you. And Paul is also acknowledging something about what he's calling his readers to. He's saying, if you're doing this right, if you are in humility counting others more significant than yourselves, if you're truly putting those around you above yourself, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your friends, your siblings in Christ, this is going to be painful. It was painful for Jesus to walk this way. It required obedience and suffering and humility. And so, This is what Paul's saying. To live with true humility, Paul is saying, by connecting it to the story of the crucified Christ, will feel like death. And so if it feels that way, friends, as you walk in the way of the cross, that's because it's supposed to feel that way. Because death, even death on a cross, as Paul says, is where Jesus' path led him. And so if you are following after Jesus, that's where your path will lead as well. Remember the words of our Lord, who after prophesying to his disciples about his death, said to them, 
Now, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. As soon as Jesus told his disciples about his own death, he invited them into it. Now, as it turns out, those words of our Lord Christ are not some absurd religious metaphor. No, Jesus actually means these things, beloved. He really meant that he was going to die. And he really meant that those who followed after him would have to die as well. If you do not have the sense that you are dying day by day for those around you whom you are called to love and serve, if you do not have the sense that you are being drawn by Jesus more and more into a real death to yourself and your desires and your preferences, then friend, you are probably missing something crucial to the Christian life. If it does not feel like death, you're probably not doing it right. It's on purpose that it feels that way. This is exactly what Paul is saying when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the good news about the way of Jesus, about this way of the cross that we are called into, is that it is not only, as that prayer states, the way of difficulty and suffering and pain, it is also, paradoxically, the way of life and peace. Because as we walk in the way of the cross, the way of self-denial, the way of self-sacrifice for those around us, we have this promise Not that that's going to be a fun thing to do all the time, but we have the promise that God will be with us, that God will be faithful to care for us, to protect us, to bless us, and on the way of the cross to give us life. But how do we know that God will do this, right? It's quite a risk to take to embrace death, trusting that God will give us life. How do we know that God will deliver us and protect us and care for us as we walk in the way of the cross? I mean, that's the fundamental question, isn't it? Without God's faithfulness as we walk in the way of self-denial, the way of death, the way of the cross, all we're doing is signing up for suffering without meaning. Embracing self-sacrifice without blessing. Everything, everything, friends, hinges on the faithfulness to God. I'm sorry, the faithfulness of God to us in that place. Now, there are lots of places we could go in the scriptures, of course, to consider the faithfulness of God to deliver his people. We could talk about Noah and the ark. We could talk about Joseph when he's thrown in prison. We could talk about Moses when he set out in the basket on the Nile. We could talk about Israel when she's enslaved in Egypt. We could talk about David when he's on the run from Saul, or Esther when she's conspired against in the court of Persia, or Daniel when he is thrown in the den of the lions. All of these stories give testimony to God's faithful character. But friends, do you know what the story par excellence is in the scriptures of God's faithful character? 
the most important story that you can be told of God's steadfast commitment to his word and his promise? That story is the story of how God raised his crucified son from the grave on the third day, just as he said he would. Friends, make no mistake, when Jesus died, he committed himself wholly and entirely into the hands of his Father. He committed himself more wholly and entirely than anyone who had gone before, more than Moses, more than David, more than Daniel. Jesus gave himself even more into God's hands. In his crucifixion, the eternal Son of God, who is united fully to the human flesh and human nature, offers himself up in death in such a way that his only hope was the faithfulness of his Father to keep his promise and raise him from death. This is one of the reasons that each of the synoptic gospels record not only Jesus' physical suffering on the cross, but also the emotional anguish of the crowds mocking him as they watched him die. Because they questioned this very thing, whether God would be faithful. The synoptic gospels record these things because they want us to see the extent to which those who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, believed that his death, and especially the form of his death, his death on a cross, by crucifixion, by public execution and torture, was evidence that God had in fact abandoned him. You see, Matthew tells us the chief priests of Israel, these are the most quote-unquote holy and religious and learned of God's people. As Jesus died... They shouted up at him and said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, they say sarcastically. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. If he desires him. And this is the cutting blow. For he said, I am the Son of God. As Jesus dies on the cross, they throw his words back in his face. You said you are the Son of God. Look at you now. How could you have been so deluded, so foolish? You see, for those who shouted and mocked Jesus from the perspective of the crowds, even who followed Jesus throughout his ministry. His crucifixion was total proof of God's abandonment of him, that he was not, in fact, the Son of God, as he had claimed. If Jesus was really the Son of God, they assumed, he would never let him die, and he certainly would never let him die like this. Naked, exposed, shamed, humiliated, tortured to death, hung up on a tree as a spectacle, like a slave, like a criminal. I mean, they had some reason to think this. Think of the stories of the Old Testament. What happened to Israel when she was trapped at the edge of the Red Sea by the hosts of Pharaoh? Did they die under the sword? No, God delivered them. 
What happened to David when he fought Goliath? Did Goliath chop his head off? Put a spear in his heart? No, David won. Did Daniel be, was Daniel torn to bits by the lions when he was thrown into the pit? No, God's faithfulness was proven by his deliverance of him. The logic is God delivered Israel, God delivered David, God delivered Daniel, and so we know God was with them. But God, obviously, publicly, in the sight of all, let Jesus of Nazareth, this assumed Messiah, be crucified. So clearly, God could not have been with him. This is the logic from a human perspective. God's son would never die in such a humiliating and terrible way. It's pretty clear. The book is closed. It's finished. Now, fascinatingly, even Jesus' closest followers assume these things to be true. On the road to Emmaus, two of Jesus' disciples, men who had walked with him for many uh, uh, months, perhaps even years, ironically, as they say these things, they're speaking to the risen Christ himself, though they don't recognize him. They sum up the perspective even of Jesus' followers, saying, our chief priests and rulers delivered him, that is, Jesus of Nazareth, up to death and crucified him. Notice they draw special attention to his crucifixion. And then they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But notice this, friends. In contrast to both his enemies and his followers, Jesus himself in his death never lost faith in God. Remember, before his death, Jesus prophesied many times, not only that he would be rejected and killed, but also every time he also said, and after three days I will be raised. Now the wording of this repeated prophecy that Jesus gives is important. He does not prophesy to his followers that he would raise himself from the dead in some kind of show of superhuman strength. Rather, he prophesied that someone else would raise him, that he would be raised, namely that his father would not abandon him, but that God would raise him. Remember Jesus' words to his apostles on the night before his death. He is trying to tell them as clearly as possible what is going to happen. They do not understand, but he's trying. He says, this is what is about to happen. And like an hour from now, Behold, he says, the hour is coming and indeed has come when you will be scattered. You will run away, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And then he says this, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus knew that even though he was about to be betrayed into the hands of men and killed in the most excruciating and humiliating way possible, his father would not forsake his promise. His father would not abandon him as his friends would. His father would be with him even in the grave. Jesus, knowing the words of Psalm 16, knowing that they spoke of him, knew that he would not be abandoned, that God's 
presence would not be void. He would not be forsaken in the grave. Rather, in a way that had never happened before in all the story of the people of God, it was when Jesus went into the grave, right? When the moment passed, no angels came, no army delivered him from the cross. He died. He lost. He went into the grave, and it was in the grave, and death itself was where the faithfulness of the Father would be most powerfully displayed for all to see. And so as he died, Luke tells us, Jesus, full of faith and trust, takes the words of Psalm 31 on his lips, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The rest of that verse, for you have redeemed me. O Lord, faithful God. That's how Jesus died. Mocked by his enemies, forsaken by his friends, but he knew that he was not alone. Even as he dies, he commits his spirit into the hands of his Father. And God was faithful. God heard the prayer of his Son. Listen to how Paul puts it here in Philippians 2. That's what Paul is reflecting on. He says, Being found in human form, he that is Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And now the hinge of the passage. Therefore, because he was obedient in this way to death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the logic of Paul's argument here is inescapable. He says it is because Jesus gave himself up to death even death on the cross, that the Father raised him and exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. It is because Jesus fully trusted him in a way that no one before had ever done. Even in death, therefore, God exalted him and raised him. And notice the last part of this sentence in verse 12. We read here, or verse 11 rather, the resurrection of Jesus, his exaltation, his being given authority, is all done for the glory of the Father. It's all for the glory of the Father. Beloved, this is the nature of our God. This is who he is. It is the particular glory of the Son to empty himself, to humble himself, to give himself up to death, even death on a cross, to place himself fully and completely in the Father's hands. And it is the particular glory of the Father to do this, to be faithful to all his promises. It is the particular and special glory of the Father to honor the Son's faith and trust by raising him from the dead, by exalting him, by giving him the name that is above every name, to proclaim him to be both Christ and Lord. 
And here's where the rubber meets the road for both Paul and for us. As it is for Jesus, so also it is for us. That is the fundamental logic of the apostles and the New Testament epistles. Those who belong to Jesus must follow in his way. They must deny themselves and take up their cross, as our Lord says, and die daily to follow him. Those, as Paul says, who belong to Jesus must have the same mind that he did, in union with him, emptying themselves, giving themselves, humbling themselves, in obedience, even to death. Beloved, the way of the cross will cost you. The New Testament pulls no punches on this point. It will cost you. There is no way around the cost. And I hear that cost in your voices when we talk. I see it in your faces, in the way you carry yourselves. I know you bear witness to that cost in the stories that you have of your life with Jesus. I know this. And that's because the suffering that Jesus calls you to is real suffering. It's real. The loss that he calls you to is real loss. The grief he calls you to is real grief. And the death that he calls you to is real death. One day, you will die. None of this, none of it is metaphor. It is real. But the promise, and this is the key point, friends, the promise is real as well. This is what Paul says. I mean, it's astounding what he says. In Romans chapter 6, he says, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's not metaphor, that's truth, that's a promise. That's what God has for you, friends. To die like Christ and be raised like Christ. And why is this true? It is because of the character of the faithful God. It is because, as Paul says in Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. That's the name of God the Father in the New Testament. He's no longer only the one who brought Israel out of the house of bondage. He is now the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, his spirit dwells also in you. And so, Paul says, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life. He will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Beloved, whatever the cost is that you are called to pay in order to follow in the way of the cross, you can trust that your heavenly Father will preserve you. He will keep you. He will be with you. And he will raise you to life 
And you can know that it's true for this reason. Because that is what he did for his son. The father was faithful to raise Jesus. And so you can be sure that he will raise you. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians. Where he says, he just bursts out in the middle of other things. He says, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that the faithfulness of God has been proven to us because of his faithfulness to his son. This is the logic of the scriptures, beloved. Your heavenly father did not abandon Jesus, and so you can be sure he will not abandon you. Indeed, it is the particular glory of the son to walk the way of the cross, to empty himself, to humble himself, to give himself up to death to place himself fully and completely in the Father's hands, and it is the particular glory of the Father to be faithful to deliver, to be faithful to all his promises. Indeed, it is the special glory of the Father to raise the Son from the dead, to exalt him, to give him the name that is above every name, to proclaim Jesus Christ to be Lord of all. And it is for that reason, the faithfulness of the Father to keep his promise, that we can pray this, we can say to him, Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, But first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it to be none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.